This is an ABC podcast. This is a jewel. And to be more specific, it's a diamond. It's around 106 carats. That's about 200 times the size of the stone in your average engagement ring. But its size isn't even the most remarkable thing about it. It's traded hands as war booty or as an article of plunder for the last 300 years. And so it's really those histories that are sort of fused into the meaning of the gemstone today. This diamond is priceless. If a strong man was to throw a stone towards the north, then towards the south, then towards the east, then towards the west, and then high up in the sky, the entire space that all those throws covered could be filled with gold and valuables and that would equal the value of the one diamond. The most amazing thing about this diamond isn't its size or its value. It's actually the story it tells. A tale 400 years long of queens and kings, colonialism, deceit and destruction. Oh, and did I mention? There's a curse. I'm Associate Professor Sarah Percy from the University of Queensland, and this is an object in time for the History Listen. The series where we hear the stories of the objects that change history forever. Today, how this cursed diamond came to rest uneasily atop the British monarchy. Our diamond is so famous that it has a name. Kohinoor is uh, Persian for Mountain of Light. I am Dr. Danielle Kinsey. I'm an assistant professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. It was a name given to the diamond by Nadir Shah, who's the Persian emperor at the time, who, the story goes, saw it and uttered Kohinoor, Mountain of Light. And so that's when the diamond got its name, sometime after 1740. No one really knows for sure, but the Kohinoor probably came from the Kollur mine in southeast India, the birthplace of several other large and famous diamonds. This diamond did not come from the White Cliffs of Dover or the, or, you know, the coal mines of Northumberland. Uh, it came from the alluvial delta of the Godavari River in southern India. Diamonds there, incidentally, are not mined, but they're sieved, like you sieve for gold in Gold Rush of the United States. The first story about the diamond surfaces in 1739. At that point, it was part of an item of furniture, uh, and not just an item of furniture. It was part of the largest and most expensive, most sort of spectacular piece of furniture ever built, which was called uh, the Peacock Throne. William Dalrymple is a historian. And the Mughal emperor, Shah Jahan, decided, in a sense, to weaponize his jewel collection, which is probably the greatest jewel collection in history. Uh, And he built a throne that looks more like, in a sense, a kiosk. It's a kind of, you know, it's a three-dimensional object that you can sit inside. And he covered it with diamonds, rubies, pearls, sapphires, the greatest and largest items in his collection. And he modelled it on the Quranic description of the throne of Solomon. But you don't display a massive diamond within a throne of jewels without attracting a little jealousy. Shah Jahan doesn't hold on to the diamond for long. When Nadir Shah, the Shah of Iran, invades India in 1739, he claims the jewel for his own. Over the following century, the throne was broken up. The man who captured it, Nadir Shah, one of his 
bodyguards ran off with it, founded the state of Afghanistan, uh, and then it passed through several generations of that man's descendants. And eventually it ended up back in India uh, in the hands of the greatest leader of the Sikhs, uh, who was called Ranjit Singh. By the 1830s, it is clear that Ranjit Singh is an extraordinary military leader. He's regarded as just, loyal, brave, and it's certainly true that he created this extraordinary state. And to top it all, he brought in ex-Napoleonic generals. Uh, Napoleon had just lost Waterloo, and uh, a lot of his armies were, and officers were uh, looking for jobs elsewhere in the world as mercenaries. And five or six of them ended up far away from France, in the Punjab, building this extraordinary modern army called the Fourjikas, special army for the Sikhs. And they used it to create an incredibly rich and well-run state that was able to fend off the British who'd seized the whole of the rest of India and which lay immediately next to British territories in the Punjab. As soon as Ranjit Singh has the diamond, it starts moving inexorably towards an encounter with the British. Oftentimes when he met with British delegates, he would be wearing the diamond. And so delegates would talk about him wearing the diamond. They would expect him to wear the diamond as a, as a mark of his stature. And so when British newspapers began reporting about Ranjit Singh and about the Anglo-Sikh wars, they would often mention the diamond. Ranjit Singh's powerful military state in the Punjab is a tempting target for the British and the East India Company. The East India Company is a private company with its own army, and it pursues the interests of the British crown. It made Pablo Escobar and Narcos and the Medellin cartel look like uh, bananas in pyjamas, to use an ABC parallel. Uh, it was a, uh, uh, an extraordinary evil business that broke laws and did terrible things everywhere in order to enrich its shareholders and, and, and Great Britain. And by the time of Ranjit Singh, it had seized the whole of India south of the Himalayas. And the kingdom of Ranjit Singh sat uneasily on the borders with the river Sutlej separating it from the East India Company's territories. The East India Company is the most sort of unpleasant neighbour you could possibly want and is always looking for a way to expand its territories and increase its wealth. The British take advantage of this division in the Sikh kingdom and invade. This is the first of two Anglo-Sikh wars. In the Second War, the British managed to take the entire kingdom, and they settled the war with the Treaty of Lahore. The treaty does a lot of the usual things a treaty would do. There are territorial settlements and property changes hands, but it hasn't been signed between equal parties. In fact, the British have made Ranjit Singh's heir a child sign the treaty. When this poor child, Dulip Singh, who's the seven-year-old son of the great Maharaja Ranjit Singh, he is forced not only to hand over his territory, uh, but specifically in the Treaty of Lahore, to hand over the diamond that is called the Kohinoor uh, to Queen Victoria. Uh, and this is quite a natty move by uh, the man who runs the uh, East India Company is a guy, a Scotsman called Lord Dalhousie. Uh, and he really wants to become the next prime minister. He's like Boris Johnson when he was foreign minister. He's always looking for a way to, uh, uh, to get rid of the current prime minister and, and seize control. Uh, and uh, Lord Dalhousie, without consulting his own employers, the East India Company, puts in a provision in the treaty that Queen Victoria is going to get this diamond. 
and uh, the the uh, directors of these indie company are completely furious at this, but uh, obviously they can't uh, object. So the diamond goes to Britain uh, and becomes part of the possessions of Queen Victoria. Lord Dalhousie is convinced that the diamond should belong to the Queen. He writes in his diary... It is not every day that an officer of their government adds four millions of subjects to the British Empire and places the historical jewel of the Mughal emperors in the crown of his own sovereign. This I have done. Do not think I unduly exult. The Koh-i-Noor has changed hands many times, adorning rulers in India, Afghanistan and Persia. In 1849, the diamond embarks on its long journey to its new owner, Queen Victoria. But at this point, people begin to discuss something unfortunate about the diamond. It seems the diamond might be cursed. As I said, wherever the Koh-i-Noor, terrible bloodshed and violence follows it. Uh, Throughout its history, uh, certainly uh, there are many legends associated with cursed diamonds in Indian history. And uh, the most bloody moment of its history had taken place just after the death of Rajat Singh, when about four or five successive uh, claimants to the diamond are killed or assassinated in very short uh, order. And it seems that the curse of the Koh-i-Noor follows it on its journey to England. The Koh-i-Noor is packed on a ship to go to England but trouble arrives long before it even reaches its destination. And it's not more than a day out of Bombay when the first sailor falls ill with cholera. Uh, And then another, and then another. And the the ship has become a plague ship. Uh, Cholera has broken out among the crew. One by one, they're dying. They try and pull in at Mauritius, but Mauritius says they're going to blow them out of the water if they bring cholera, that they put under quarantine, they're not allowed to land. So they struggle on, and then another disaster happens which is that the biggest typhoon breaks out and nearly breaks this poor little ship in two. And it's almost as if the curse that that is attached to the Koh-i-Noor is coming with it to England, because the day that it enters British territorial waters, two terrible things happen. First of all, the the former Prime Minister, Peel, is thrown from his horse on Primrose Hill, and his horse then falls on top of him and he's killed. And the same day, a madman breaks out of the crowd and wallops Queen Victoria over the head with a stick. And so she, when she receives the Koh-i-Noor that evening, it's with a black eye. So, I mean, it is extraordinary. If you, if you read the history of this diamond, wherever it goes, chaos seems to break out. The curse that follows the diamond causes a bit of a problem. After all, it's supposed to be a gift for Queen Victoria, Empress of India. Cursed diamonds, no matter how big they are, don't make the best gifts. There's this huge debate going on in the British press, and it begins in 1850, and it continues right through the end of the 19th century, that the stone is cursed, and whoever wears it is not going to be able to uh, carry out their reign as they would like. And then there's like a counter discourse that's happening that because Queen Victoria is female, she can wear it because that mitigates the effects of this Indian curse. The curse isn't enough to deter Queen Victoria from showing off her new jewel. On this gloomy day in May 1851, a long line of people snakes through Hyde Park to the Crystal Palace. All of the treasures of the British Empire are on display here at the Great Exhibition. 
everyone is talking about the exhibition. In fact, one in every five Britons is going to join this immense queue over the next six months. And they're all lining up to sneak a glimpse of our famous diamond. So they put it on display in this kind of gilded birdcage. And it's on display in the nave of the Crystal Palace. And it happened to be pretty rainy that summer. So the light that was coming into the Crystal Palace wasn't that great. And so the diamond didn't sparkle enough. It didn't read to exhibition goers as an impressive diamond, as a mountain of light. And it was kind of like a minor scandal of just how unimpressed crowds were. There were still crowds. People were still lined up to see it and sort of rushed to see it in its gilded birdcage. Um, but by and large, critics came away unimpressed with the stone. To the ordinary eyes, it is nothing more than an egg-shaped lump of glass. On ordinary days, that is the shilling days, it is exposed in its great cage, ornamented with a policeman, and they rely on the sun to cause it to sparkle. But on Friday and Saturday, it puts on its best dress. It is arrayed in a tent of red cloth, and the interior is supplied with a dozen little jets of gas, which throw their light on the god of the temple. Unhappily, the Kohinoor does not sparkle. So after the Kohinoor proves to be a bit of a damp squib, and various ways are, are chosen to make it look more shiny and, and, and more like the Victorians imagine diamonds and want diamonds to look like, and they, they put it uh, in a little sort of tent, uh, but it becomes effectively a sauna. Um, because it's so hot in there with all the gas lamps trying to make it sparkle. So eventually, after the Great Exhibition, Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, decides to, to make the momentous decision to have the Koh-i-Noor cut. The Koh-i-Noor has been cut in the Mughal tradition, where there are some small facets on the edges, but the middle is clear, so you can see right inside to the heart of the stone. It looks more like glass than a twinkling gemstone. It is shaped rather like a sort of mountain. Its name is the Mountain of Light, and it has this sort of hump, like a camel's hump, and a sort of tail. This is how Indians like their diamonds. They like them to be in the raw. They like size and scale. Western crowds, on the other hand, Europeans had become used to thinking of diamonds as basically brilliant cut, which prioritizes reflectivity above all. So, so no longer can you see into the heart of the stone, but you maximize reflectivity with a brilliant cut. And so when people rushed to see the Koh-i-Noor in the exhibition, they were seeing, I mean, one critic called it perhaps an egg-shaped lump of glass. Prince Albert, Victoria's husband, is dismayed that this grand imperial treasure has been such a disappointment. So he embarks on a quest to recut the diamond so that it glitters, glitters enough to reflect Queen Victoria's glorious reign. They've made a huge song and dance about bringing the diamond to England and turning it into, quite literally, the jewel in the crown. Uh, this was going to become part of the British royal family regalia and was going to be a symbol of empire. And they wanted it to look like they wanted diamonds to look. Uh, they didn't want a sort of tadpole-shaped diamond <laughs> that didn't glitter. They wanted a glittery one uh, that, that looked beautiful. And uh, this was the, the, the moment they took this fateful decision to cut it and, and, and made it half the weight it was when it arrived. Unfortunately, recutting a giant diamond is not easy. 
No one in Britain will take responsibility of this because there's a flaw in the diamond. And if you start cutting it, it may very well just go off in a puff of smoke. And uh, it's carbon, after all. It's, it's the same substance as coal. And if you cut it against the floor and against the grain, diamonds like coal can literally go up in, go up in smoke. Anyway, one particularly ingenious diamond cutter in Amsterdam offers to do the cut and says that they have the technology, the know-how. The cutting of the Koh-i-Noor is a major event. It's so important that Prince Albert wants to make a bit of a celebrity splash. He gets the biggest British war hero he can think of to do a ceremonial first cut of the stone. He chooses the Duke of Wellington, who had defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. They set up a special stall or a special sort of diamond-cutting booth in the Haymarket. And the Duke of Wellington is brought out of retirement. I think he's nearly 90 years old at this point. And uh, this old man is brought in and they coat a lot of the diamond in lead to make sure that he doesn't, in a sort of senile moment, cut the diamond in half or something with this equipment. Uh, But he makes the first cut and, of course, uh, uh, he himself may be another uh, victim of the Koh-i-Noor's curse because shortly afterwards he dies. The diamond comes out of this process almost 80 carats lighter, now coming in at 106 carats. It's not just smaller, though. It looks completely different. As the diamond gets appropriated into British culture, so sort of the Indianness of the diamond is supposedly cut away. And like people are making this argument at the time period, only a Western cut can unlock the true beauty of the stone and that only Europeans and mathematics and science and all of the machinery that goes into creating this brilliant cut can unlock the power of the stone that Indian science cannot or Indian ideologies cannot. So yeah, I think it's a beautiful metaphor for a kind of civilizing mission, but a civilizing mission where basically half the value of the stone is lost. And even uh, Sir David Brewster, who is one of the scientists consulted while Prince Albert was considering recutting the stone, even he said, if we cut up this big stone, are we not losing some of its historical value? And I think that is a prime topic of debate for why the stone doesn't make it into an imperial crown after it gets recut, after it's remade in the vision of what Europeans thought diamonds ought to look like. Queen Victoria now has a spectacular European diamond, and the old Mughal version is gone forever. So 1854 in France is one moment where she wears it as a brooch. She wears it as a brooch to open parliament here and there. Uh, when she begins to open Parliament again in the late 1860s after her period of mourning. But she's fairly low-key about it. Um, Yes, it's mentioned in the British press as she's wearing the Koh-i-Noor, but it's never the big deal that Lord Dalhousie wants it to be or wanted it to be. The Koh-i-Noor isn't the only thing to have permanently altered at the hands of the British monarchy. Remember Dulip Singh, the child Maharaja who signed the Treaty of Lahore? After the treaty was signed and the Koh-i-Noor was taken, Dulip Singh was separated from his family and also exiled to Britain. So another one of the bizarre provisions of the Treaty of Lahore was that Dulip Singh, as a 10-year-old, would also be put into the household of two Britons, Lady Logan and Lord Logan, who at the time of the Treaty of Lahore, they were a staunchly middle-class Um, couple, but they get knighted eventually in the 1850s so that they can take on this ward. 
And so Dulip Singh is sent sent back to England. He's educated in an English manner. He is uh, he converts to Anglicanism, and very famously, when he's in his teens, I think he's about sixteen years old at the time. Um, he sort of gets adopted into the British royal family. Like he himself is also part of this civilizing mission story. He gets adopted into the British royal family and he's getting his portrait painted and Queen Victoria is, is watching the proceedings and she calls for the diamond to be brought from the tower so that he can see it. And as the story goes, he holds the diamond up to a window, up to the light, and sort of contemplates it for a few minutes. And then he reenacts this idea that he is gifting uh, the diamond to Victoria. Dulip Singh is still a young man when he sees the Koh i Noor again, but being taken to Britain ruined his life. No, it wasn't a happy life. I think he was a man who's, uh, who had a conflicted destiny, who, in fact, whose destiny was not at all in control. Nav Sharna is an author and former Indian High Commissioner to Britain. I mean, he couldn't control his own affairs. It was a pretty sad life. So I, I personally have a great sense of empathy when I read about him, that he, you know, it's, it's a man who, who's, who really never could live his life. Eventually, Dilip Singh changes his mind. He wants the koh back. He writes to Queen Victoria. It will be useless for me to demand the restoration of my kingdom swindled from me, but which I hope shortly, by the aid of Providence, to retake from my robbers. But my diamond, the Kohinoor, I understand is entirely at your own personal disposal. I do not hesitate to ask that this gem be restored to me, or else that a fair price be paid for it out of your privy purse. I have the honour to subscribe myself, your most gracious majesty, the deeply wronged legitimate sovereign of the Sikhs, Dulip Singh. The Koei Noor was never returned. And then, of course, a kind of sense of rebellion, began, he began to nurse that, particularly when even the money that was due to him was being whittled away. And uh, while he lived the life of an English squire, he was always up against debts and uh, bills and, and all that sort of thing. And of course, they said he's wasteful, he has very luxurious lifestyles, and he throws money at dancing girls and all that. But he was a king. But the fact is that they wanted him to stay as a quiet British subject, which soon he stopped doing. He began to know more and more of his legacy. He began to ask for more. And over the next few years, when he realized that he was not getting what was due to him, nothing would go to his children. He would Even his estate wouldn't go to his children after his death. He actually rebels. He moves off to Paris, tries to go back to India. He stopped at Aden and sent back. And he finally goes to Paris, lives there. You know, he trucks with Irish revolutionaries, with, uh, with Germans, with Russians with various other enemies of the empire. He wants to go back to India and liberate India. He has visions of going and getting a Russian army and uh, going down. So he goes to Moscow, waits a year there to meet the Tsar, can't do it. And he's you know, being spied on by the British all the time. So finally he comes back and defeated and uh, then he has a stroke in Paris and he dies pretty lonely uh, and sad death. 
ever since the Koh-i-Noor has been sparkling away in London. It now sits in the crown worn by the Queen Mother. Since she died in 2002, no one has worn the Koh-i-Noor. Today, it sits with all the other crown jewels in the Tower of London. Nearly everyone who has held the Koh-i-Noor has tried to claim that they should have it instead. Pakistan, Iran, Bangladesh and India. Well, I think the least amount of claim anybody has is the British. Simply because it's sitting there, it is not, uh, uh, you know, uh, no justification for it being kept there. It's clearly something which was claimed through duplicitous methods, no matter what uh, shine we put on it. And it was taken away from a treaty which was essentially invalid in many ways. All they have is the possession of the diamond. Now, as to where it should go, if it were to go at all, that's another battle. You know, I think the last holder of the diamond was the Sikh king. So I think the strongest claim would be by the Sikhs, and the Sikhs are now in India. There are minorities uh, anywhere else, or there's a diaspora, but the Sikhs would want to be part of India. So hence the claim becomes an Indian claim. Uh, and that's what's been pushed forward at uh, times by, you know, uh, Indian writers, Indian activists, that it is India's diamond. It won't be unchallenged. There would be a Pakistani claim saying it was in Lahore. So Lahore is in Pakistan. But then the counter argument will be is that was a Sikh kingdom and the Sikhs are now in India. And then, of course, you know, they, you'd, you'd never know when the Iranians or the Afghans or uh, others uh, don't start putting in a claim. But this is also a British argument for not wanting to move ahead on it, saying there'll be too many claimants, so just let it be here. At some levels is a, is a superficial argument, it's a specious argument, but then that's where we are, and that applies to so much else in the British museums. I mean, David Cameron famously said that if we start giving things away, there'll be nothing left here. So, <laughs> so we don't know. Uh, you know, maybe at some stage, uh, as the movement for reparations, movement for restoration of object art, uh, um, the valuables taken from different countries takes power as it is doing now, maybe some stage this would be seriously examined. Who actually owns the Koh-i-Noor is a matter of considerable dispute. As we've seen, it's moved from owner to owner, each one grasping after power and each willing to stop at nothing to get their hands on the jewel. The British claim, though, must be among the weakest. After all, they took the diamond from a child. But the power of that diamond and the power of empire have been reduced to a pretty sterile spectacle. The Tower of London has put on a sort of airport-style conveyor belt around the diamond case where the Koh-i-Noor resides today. Every Indian who walks past in that long line, past the crown jewels, looks at it and stops at extra minute and points, ah, that's our diamond. That's our diamond. Well, there's always a sense of uh, historical wrong attached to it. And you always feel that, oh, uh, there's a sense of uh, resentment. Uh, there's a sense of a wrong that needs to be righted. The romance and glitter of the Koh-i-Noor obscure the darker story at its heart. Nearly everyone who saw the diamond coveted it. But what they were really yearning for was power. The kind of power that creates and holds together empires, and the kind of power for which rulers would pay any price. All those stories of empire, conquest, violence and resistance rest inside a diamond you can hold in the palm of your hand. 
it's hard to imagine, however compelling the claims, anyone giving up the Koh-i-Noor willingly. After all, that's never happened before. So it will probably sit in its glass box, not at the center of an empire, but at the center of a conveyor belt. This was an object in time for the History Listen. I'm Associate Professor Sarah Percy from the University of Queensland. The supervising producer is Edwina Stott, and the sound engineer is Carrie Dell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.